My name is Anthony P. Richards. I'm a pastor and I started this podcast channel to equip, encourage, inspire and challenge you to passionately live to your potential in Christ through the Word of God. For more information, you can go to my YouTube channel, Anthony P. Richards. Welcome to another day as we continue our journey through the Word of God. And I'm so glad that you are joining me on this journey as we continue today through the book of Matthew. And we are looking at the next section in Matthew chapter 8. We're going to be starting at verse 5 today, Matthew chapter 8, verse 5. Again, if you've not had a chance to watch any of my previous videos, uh, links are in the description below. Go to my YouTube channel. There are all playlists set up there so you can go through all books of the Bible. And uh, I haven't done them all yet, and I'm working my way through. But uh, I want to encourage you to to share those. And if you're listening on a podcast, welcome. Let's share these out. I'm on every podcast platform that I can possibly be on and just really want to encourage people as much as I can to have the truth of the Word of God in their hearts. Today we are looking at Matthew chapter 8, as I said, starting at verse 5. And Jesus has just finished performing his very first miracle, which was cleansing a leper. And then we go on to verse 5. Now when Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him pleading with him, saying, Lord, my servant is lying at home paralyzed, dreadfully tormented. Uh, Jesus lived in Capernaum. Come with me to, to, to Israel and I'll take you to Capernaum. And you can see where Jesus lived. Absolutely amazing. See where he looked at the Sea of Galilee every morning. Centurion comes to Jesus uh, the centurion was obviously a Gentile because the centurion was an officer of the Roman army and almost every Jew under Roman occupation felt a reason to hate the centurion. Uh, but he came to a Jewish teacher for help and he came not for a selfish reason but to uh, for have help given to his servant. Now, whenever the New Testament mentions the centurion, and there's actually seven times, uh, it actually, or interestingly enough, always presents them as honourable good men, which is interesting. And this centurion had an unusual attitude towards his slave because under Roman law, a master had the right to kill his slave if he got sick or ill. Uh, if he couldn't do his job, then he could just kill him. And this centurion pleads with Jesus and shows that he, he wasn't just making a casual request. He's pleading with Jesus uh, on behalf of his servant. Spurgeon says, the man, the centurion, seeks a cure, but does not prescribe to the Lord how or where he shall work. In fact, he does not put his request into words, but pleads the case and lets the sorrow speak. Verse 7, And Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. And the centurion answered and said, Lord, I am not worthy that you should come under my roof, but only speak a word and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man under authority, having soldiers under me. And I say to this one, go, and he goes. And I say to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. Jesus did not hesitate to be prepared to go to the centurion's house. And I actually wish the centurion would have let him go to his house. But, because it was completely against Jewish custom for a Jew to enter, enter a Gentile's house. Uh, but it was not against God's law. 
And the centurion, I think, sensed this. And he said, Lord, I'm not worthy that you should come under my roof because most Jews believe that a Gentile home was not worthy of them. And the centurion supposed that this great rabbi Jesus, this great teacher, would consider his home unworthy. I think the centurion also showed a great sensitivity to Jesus in this moment. Uh, in that he wanted to spare Jesus the awkward challenge of whether or not to enter a Gentile's house. He also was sensitive to Jesus' time and travel needs. He didn't know Jesus well enough to know that he would not feel awkward in the least if Jesus had gone to his house, but his consideration of Jesus in this situation is incredibly impressive. In his concern for both his servant and his concern for Jesus, then Centurion proved that he was somebody who was very much focused on the needs of others and not himself. He was a noble man. And he said, only speak a word and my servant will be healed. The Centurion fully understood that Jesus' healing power wasn't some kind of magic trick that required the, the magician to be present. Instead, he knew that Jesus had true authority with his words. Why? Because he could command things to be done with his words, just the same way the centurion could. The centurion could command uh, men with his words, and the centurion knew that Jesus could command the power that he had with his words. And, and, and the centurion had great faith in Jesus' word. And he said, I am a man also under authority. Also, just the, the addition of the word also meant that he understood who Jesus was in relationship to the Father. He understood it. The centurion knew about the military chain of command, how the orders of one in authority were unquestioningly obeyed, and he saw that Jesus had at least that much authority. F.B. Meyer, as the authority of the Caesars flowed through his own yielded life, talking about the centurion, so the authority of God over diseases, demons, and all else would flow through Jesus Christ. Verse 10. When Jesus heard what the centurion said, he marveled and he said to those who followed, Assuredly, I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. What an amazing statement. And I say to you that many will come from east and west and sit down with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into outer darkness. There'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then Jesus said to the centurion, Go your way, and as you have believed, so let it be done for you. And his servant was healed that same hour. This, this man, man's understanding of Jesus' spiritual authority made Jesus marvel. His simple confidence in the ability of Jesus through his mere words showed a faith that was free of any superstitious reliance on external things. This was truly great faith and a faith that should be praised. And Jesus considered the faith of this Gentile centurion, who was really a living symbol of Jewish oppression. And he thought that it was greater than any faith that he had seen amongst his own people. Now, it's interesting to note, that at the time when Jesus used the word Israel, there was no political nation known as Israel. It was Israel known as a covenant people who had descended from Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. 
And Jesus called them Israel, knowing that they had their own land, they had their own inheritance, they just weren't occupying it or recognised as their own political entity, which did not happen until the year 1948. Almost 2,000 years after Jesus said, I've not seen this in all of Israel. That's why going to Israel is an amazing experience. He said many will come from the east and the west sit down with Abraham. The fact that such faith was present in a Gentile caused Jesus to announce that there will be Gentiles in the kingdom of heaven. Again, would have been mind-blowing to the Jewish people listening to this. And he said even these Gentiles will sit down with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob which was a radical idea to so many in Jesus' day. They assumed that this great messianic banquet would have no Gentiles and that only Jews would be there. And Jesus corrects a couple of mistaken ideas here. These few words of Jesus that uh, he shares here, before he tells the centurion, go, he actually has like a little mini sermon in here where he tells us a little something of what heaven is like. It's a place where we rest. It's a place where we sit down. It's a place of good company. It's a place of friendship with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in heaven. It's a place with many people. Jesus said many will come into heaven. It's a place with people from all over the earth, east and west, they will come into heaven. It is a actual certain place. Jesus said many will come. And when Jesus says it will happen, you can trust it that it will happen. Spurgeon. But ye shall hear those loved voices again. Ye shall hear those sweet voices once more. Ye shall yet know that those whom ye loved have been loved by God. Would not that be a dreary heaven for us to inhabit, where we should be alike unknowing and unknown? I would not care to go to such a heaven as that. I believe that heaven is a fellowship of the saints and that we shall know one another there. But the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into outer darkness. Why did Jesus say that? Jesus reminded his Jewish listeners that just as the Gentiles' racial identity was no automatic barrier to the kingdom, their racial identity was no guarantee of getting into the kingdom. Even though Jews were the sons of the kingdom, they might actually end up in hell. RT France. There could hardly be a more radical statement of the change in God's plan of salvation inaugurated by the mission of Jesus. Spurgeon said this, What is it that the lost are doing for eternity? They are weeping and gnashing their teeth. Do you gnash your teeth now? You would not do it unless you were in pain or agony. Well, in hell, there is always gnashing of teeth and there is always pain and agony. We see that Jesus was actually unafraid to speak of hell. And he spoke about hell more than any other person in the Bible. And there are some people who don't want to talk about hell. Um, there are many ministers who would say if you do not love the Lord Jesus Christ you'll be sent to that place which is not polite to mention Spurgeon said and Spurgeon went on to say he ought not to have been allowed to preach again I am sure if he could not use plain words uh, it is a real place 
and God desires for no one to go there, which is why he provided a free gift for you and I. Acceptance of the gift of salvation through Jesus Christ. He made a way. Verse 14. Now when Jesus had come into Peter's house, he saw his wife's mother lying sick with a fever. So he touched her hand and the fever left her and she arose and served them. So this is in Capernaum also. Now, if you come to Capernaum, we actually can look at the ruins of what we think uh, may have been actually Peter's mother's house. Which is amazing because Peter was the first pope in the Roman Catholic Church, and but he was married. And this very clearly states that he was married. And here we have a almost an explanation for us that marriage is not a hindrance to a virtuous life because the chief of the apostles had a wife himself. And marriage is one of the first divine institutions. It's actually a positive command of God, Adam Clark says. Now, this mother-in-law of Peter's was was a good woman. Spurgeon said she was allowed to live with her son-in-law and he was anxious to have her restored to health. So that that points to what kind of person she was. And he touched her hand and the fever left her. Jesus healed this woman with a gentle touch. He healed the, le- the leper, gentle touch. Heals Peter's mother-in-law, gentle touch. Her sickness was much less severe than the leper, but Jesus still cared for her. Jesus cared for her problem, even though it was smaller than what the leper was going through and dealing with. Matthew Poole, the miracle here was not in the cure of an incurable disease like the leper, but in the way of the cure by a touch of his hand and a touch of her hand. Interesting. Jesus' first couple of miracles, touch, compassionate touch. Now, what is the very first reaction of of Peter's mother? He touched her, fever left her, she arose and served them. The very first thing she did, was she served them. I actually think that's a very fitting response for anybody who's been touched by Jesus' power is to serve him. She immediately began to serve. Serving Jesus is is a wonderful way of being restored to spiritual health, not just physical health. Verse 16. When the evening had come, they brought to him many who were demon-possessed, and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, he himself took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses. Jesus' care for the individual is shown by the implication that Jesus dealt with each person individually, not in not in an assembly line of, of healings. Uh, Adam Clark says this, Dr. Lightfoot gives two sound reasons why Judea in our Lord's time abounded with demoniacs, people who were demon-possessed. Firstly, there was not a nation under heaven more wicked than they were. Secondly, because they were then strongly addicted to magic and so, as it were, invited evil spirits to be familiar with them. So, a lot of demon-possessed people in this part of the world. And Matthew rightly understood this was a partial fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy in Isaiah 53, which primarily refers to spiritual healing, but also definitely includes physical healing. And in this, Matthew shows Jesus as the true Messiah 
who's delivering people from the bondage of sin, but also the effects of a fallen world. He himself took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses is what it was prophesied. And the provision for our healing, both spiritually and physically, is made by the sufferings and the stripes of Jesus Christ. And the physical dimension of our healing is partially realized now, but it is finally and totally realized in our resurrected bodies when we spend eternity with Jesus Christ. And this healing work of our Savior actually cost Jesus something. It wasn't as if he had a a magic bag of healing power that he drew from and and just gave it to the needy. No, it came at the cost of his own agony. He himself took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses. And, And this section of Matthew's gospel shows four different people being healed and each one of them was different from the other. Uh, there was a Jew with no social or religious privileges. There was a Gentile officer of the army occupying and oppressing Israel. So you've got the leper, you've got the centurion, you've got a woman related to one of Jesus' devoted followers, that's Peter's mother-in-law, and then you've got the unnamed multitudes. And their requests were different. Uh, the, the leper made a direct request made in his own faith. There was the request from the centurion, which was for another man made in faith on behalf of that suffering man. There was no request made by Peter's mother-in-law because Jesus came to her. So there was no evidence of her own individual faith. And then there were sufferers that were brought to Jesus here who had different levels of faith and kinds of faith. Jesus used different methods to heal these first four people. Uh, He used a touch that was forbidden to the leper. He used a spoken word from afar for the centurion's servant. He used a tender touch for Peter's mother-in-law. And he used a whole lot of different methods to heal the people that were sick in verse 16. So what? can we take from all of this is that we understand that physical healing is an area where God especially shows his sovereignty. He does things just as he pleases, not necessarily as we might expect, want or demand. God always has his own way. Verse 18, when Jesus saw great multitudes about him, he gave a command to depart to the other side. Then a certain scribe came and said to him, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Jesus' popularity increased, but he didn't follow the crowds or even try to seek to make them bigger. In some ways, he actually tried to avoid the great multitudes about him. And this man comes and says, I'll follow you wherever I go, wherever you go. Uh, with the miracles associated with Jesus' ministry, following him, I guess, might have been seen as glamorous and maybe more glamorous than it really was. And Jesus maybe received a lot of spontaneous offers like this. Spurgeon said, I wonder if this man thought, well, now I am a scribe, so if I join that company, I shall be a leader because I'm already better than most of them. I perceive that they are only fishermen, the bulk of them. And if I come in amongst them, then I shall be a great acquisition to that little band of people. I shall no doubt be the secretary. 
Perhaps he may have thought that there was something to be made out of such a position. There was one who thought so. Jesus then goes on and gives the man a bit of a slap. And he says, oh, oh, you want to follow me, do you? You think, you think this is what it's all is, just, you know, like miracles and easy? No, let me tell you. Foxes have holes and birds have nests and the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Jesus didn't say to him, no, you can't follow me. He just said, no, if you're going to follow me, then you have to understand that there's nothing glamorous about following me, uh, which was the opposite of techniques used by different leaders of the time and rabbis of the time and even leaders today. Um, Jesus wanted the man to know that following him was going to be tough. D.A. Carson, in the immediate context of Jesus' ministry, the saying does not mean that Jesus was penniless but homeless. The nature of his mission kept him on the move and he would keep his followers on the move also. So Jesus had a time when he lived in Capernaum, but then he had to leave Capernaum. He had to go and do ministry in other places. He couldn't always come home at night. R.T. France, many homes like Peter's were open to him, but he had no, no home of his own. See, Jesus lived in Capernaum, but he never had his own home there. The reason that this man turned away from Jesus after saying, I'll go wherever you want me to, is because Jesus lived a very simple life by faith and trusted his father for every need without any reserve of any material resource. And Jesus wanted this man to know that the Son of Man, yeah, doesn't have all the things that you think you need. Interesting, the, the Son of Man is used 81 times in the Gospels, and every time it's used, uh, it's either something Jesus said of himself or the words of someone quoting Jesus. Uh, it's a very important phrase that Jesus used to describe himself, and he used it as a title that reflect, reflected his glory as prophesied in Daniel chapter 7, but also his humility uh, as talked about in Psalm 8 of who the Messiah would be. And it's a connection to uh, to the Daniel passage, and it's one that means that it was an image of power and glory, but it was without the unwanted associations with all the other titles. And by using the Son of Man title often, Jesus was telling his listeners, listen, I'm the Messiah of power of glory, but I'm not the one that you're expecting. I'm actually the Son of Man. His lineage all the way to Adam, his lineage to David, his lineage all the way to allow him to be called the Son of Man, but in a divine way. Verse 21. Then another of his disciples said to him, Lord, let me, let me, be, let me first go and bury my father. So this is somebody who's called the disciple, wants to follow him, and then says, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. But Jesus said to him, follow me. Let the dead bury their own dead. Now, this man was not asking for permission to go and dig a grave for his father who had already died. He wanted to stay with his father until his father died, care for him until his father died, which was obviously an indefinite period, and it was going to drag on and on and on. Now, this man was already a disciple, so he'd already shown discipline to follow what Jesus had asked him. Now, Jesus ups the ante and says, now this is what I need you to do. And he couldn't do it. And he certainly couldn't do what the 12 disciples do. 
which shows us that the term disciples has a very broad meaning in the Gospel of Matthew and has to be understood in its context. Because the man wanted to follow Jesus, but just not yet. He wanted to follow God, but on his own terms, in his own time. He knew it was good, and he knew that he should actually do it, but he felt that there was actually a good reason and a better reason why he shouldn't do it now. Sound familiar? Jesus said, follow me, let the dead bury the dead. Jesus pressed the man to follow him now and clearly stated the principle that family obligations or any other obligation must be secondary to the obligations of whatever Jesus asks us to do. Jesus must always come first. Seek first the kingdom of God and all these things shall be added unto you. Jesus was not afraid to discourage potential disciples. And Jesus was very honest. He said, this is what it means to follow me. And and I want you to know this from the very beginning. Spurgeon said this, much of the concerns of politics, party tactics, committee meetings, social reforms, innocent amusements and so forth may be very fitly described as burying the dead. Much of this is very needful. It's proper and commendable work, but still only such a form of business as unregenerate man can do as well as disciples of Jesus. So let them do it. But if we are called to preach the gospel and do whatever God asks us to do, then let us give ourselves wholly to our sacred calling. So what's my observation today? So many people are not doing what God has called them to do because they are waiting for their father to die. They're waiting for something that they think is more important than doing what God has asked them to do. Nothing is more important than you and I doing what God wants us to do. Nothing, not a thing. There is not one thing. I've heard people being called to the mission field. And they're like, oh, well, I'm just going to wait until this event and this event, then we'll go. Oh, I was, I've been waiting for this, this and this. Oh, then we'll wait until that, then we'll go. Uh, yeah, well, I know I've been called into ministry, but I'm just going to wait until the, and then they want to do it. Jesus says, if you want to be my disciple, when I say jump, you just say how high. Simple as that. You don't say, I'm going to jump later. You say, yes, I'm ready to go. I'm ready to jump into any anywhere you want to throw me, God, because I know you'll go with me. And I know if you're calling me to it, nothing bad can happen. That's not out of your sovereign will. See, that's my observation. Is that if you are not doing what God has called you to do because you're waiting to bury somebody, or you're waiting till a certain event happens or something takes place, then you're being disobedient and you're deceiving yourself, thinking you're noble, waiting for that cause. What a noble thing to say. Oh, Jesus, can you just let me go and and take care of my old father and wait for him to die because that would be the right thing to do. Don't you think, Jesus? Jesus says, no, let the dead bury the dead. You have to understand that the things of eternity and the things that God has called us to do, God understands those things. He knows what you're talking about. He knows those things. It's not like he's not aware of them. It's not like he forgot. It's not like him and the angels like missed out on their committee meeting that morning. How come nobody told me that he was waiting to bury his father? I would never have asked him to be a disciple. If one of you had just spoken up and said, hey, he's got a sick old father. How horrible of us to ask him to follow me when he's got a sick father. No, but that's how we treat Jesus. Let's not do that. Heavenly Father, Let us be followers of you who are disciplined 
to hear your voice and to go and to do what you've called us to do. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thank you so much for listening. For more content, please don't forget to check out my YouTube channel, Anthony P. Richards. Have a great day.